1: for the power, the power of truth, this, this is the Glad, Glad Report.
0: Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Welcome to this episode, to the very first episode of The Glad Report, the premiere. I decided to talk about the human condition just to start really from the beginning why so i'm human if there are any aliens listening um i just need to stop (laughs) okay yeah i'm human and i just thought because we're all human and we're in this great pursuit of life for better why are we why are we doing all this why are we in this pursuit in the first place is it all vanity What's the order of it all? We humans are textured, contextual we are to our times, to our environments. To be or not to be is all dependent on context. We humans are textured, contextual we are to our times. To be or not to be is all dependent on context. We humans are contextual to our times. To be or not to be is all dependent on context. I'd love to start with the story of six Indian blind men. So these six Indian blind men lived together. And where they lived, they were hearing stories of an Indian princess who used to ride with an elephant around town, around her palace. So they were naturally curious about what an elephant really was. What was this animal? So the curiosity drove them to go looking for an elephant. They went to the palace to see and to, to to witness an elephant for themselves, excuse me. So they went to the, the palace and upon touching The elephant, they were relying solely on the sense of touch because they were blind. The first one said, after touching the side of the elephant, said, An elephant is like a smooth, solid, powerful wall. The second, after touching the trunk, said, An elephant is like a giant snake. The third, after touching the tusk, said, An elephant is like a deadly spear. The fourth, after touching the ear, Said an elephant is like a huge fan a mag- or a magic carpet. The fifth, after touching the leg, said an elephant is like an extremely large cow. And the final sixth one, after touching the tail, said the elephant is like an old coarse rope. They were all correct, essentially, because from their perspectives, from their point of reality, from their frame of reality, they were correct. It's just me trying, me telling this short story, this short anecdote, is this me trying to shed light on the fact that reality is very contextual. The way you experience life is based on what you're witnessing, what you're, what you're seeing, what you're, what you have access to. Our states of mind are influenced by what our five senses are in are, are, are feeling, your smell, your sight, your touch, your hearing, your taste. And each of our five senses, the five basic ones, are influenced, are enhanced by environment because environment is a key shaper. So when we're watching things, we're absorbing those images and they start to take, they, they start to shape our just thinking patterns. When we eat certain foods, we're teaching our taste buds what to like. When we wear certain clothes, we're showing who we are from what we've absorbed. And you're also telling yourself, this is what I like, this is who I am. When you listen to the the education you've been exposed to, things like that. So it's just really your state of mind, who you are, is really shaped by how your senses have reacted to the environment. It's been, they've been placed in. So environment is a very, is quite a key shape is a very big key, is a very, is a shaper in our states of mind. So you hear a person say, who am I really? They're really trying to say, um, well, all these life stories, I my, my my genetic makeup tells me this but my environment has added this, this and that and that really who that really is who the person is but you see taking environment out of the question taking everything out of the question are we fundamentally good or bad is the question but then for the, for those philosophers they might even ask what is what is good and what is bad, is in being morally good and morally bad, contextual to place, contextual to people. It's all dependent. Good or bad is all, is all it's, all, it's all, debatable, but like from just the basic, um, things that we believe in, that we all believe are good and bad. Generally, all of us would be like, it's a general consensus that we all believe murder is wrong. Hands up, if anyone, I'm, I'm, you're welcome to come to me, to come and tell me, OK, actually, in this particular place, I've seen this place, merger is legal and they've justified that it is good. I haven't heard of any situation where that's actually fact. I don't think that's that's in, that's infringing on the rights of another human being. But That's an entirely different conversation. But yeah, good or bad. So essentially, are we good or bad? If you read a book, Lord of the Flies, shout out to my high school teacher. I hated reading in high school. I don't even know how I'm referencing this book. Shout out to my high school English teacher for making this read at Lord of the Flies by Aldous Huxley. Um, it tells the story of these British boys shipwrecked from British boarding school. Actually, a bit about the writer. Um, um, Oxford educated, Eton college boy. Um, yeah, he became a teacher, uh, an English teacher uh, his Wikipedia entry tells me that he was not good at controlling the class. So he, anyway, <laughs> that's slightly embarrassing to be remembered, should be remembered like that and writing books about human behavior of boys. And you can't really like, you can't really explain. You can't really like any really put them, you can't make them, you can't order them properly anyway. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the Lord <laughs> of the Flies story. So these boys are stuck on an island, I think, for about a year. If I'm remembering correctly, I don't remember very well. I haven't read it in like over four years, about 2016, 2015. About that time is when I did my IGs. Um, So, yeah, they stay on the island for a while. They try to maintain a bit of order, you know, the British with their order. They put this guy, Rolf, in charge, you know, alpha characteristics. They're like, okay, yeah, this guy charismatic, let's make him lead. And I, I imagine that he was handsome too, um, <laughs> from his behavior. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he's in charge. They maintained a bit of order. I think they were in a choir or something. And I think they had this thing called a conch which you you used if you want to speak, some, some shell that you'd use to want, like to show that you're about to speak. Anyway, these are just little side notes, really relevant to the main point of the story, why I'm telling the story. So as they lived on the island together, so it's a bit, it's a, I'm about to give a ruin. So I'm sorry if you haven't read the book, you can cut it out now to like the next five minutes so you can catch on to the conversation. But yeah, I think they, it's a bit dystopic. They live in a group, I don't know how many there were initially, maybe, I don't know. I just can give a random number to it. I think eight of them on the island, 10, <laughs> the largest 12. So like, I think that the, within the age range of... I think maybe Ralph was the oldest, let's say 15 years old or something, if I'm remembering correctly. Or the facts, little nitty gritties do not come to me for the book. Anyway, they ended up killing one of the boys. His name was Piggy. I don't know what came upon them, some sort of spirit. I don't know what was happening. They ended up killing Piggy on the island, which is him, Huxley, trying to highlight that essentially human beings are inherently bad. So... Yeah, but then years later, we hear a story of Roger Bregman who finds a story of these boys from a high school found off the coast of Australia, I think on the island of, um, I don't want to be quoted, (laughs) Fiji. Um, Telling a story of how they lived harmoniously on this island. They lived well. They organized things properly when they were discovered by a ship. They were fine. They lived together. I think they're still alive now. It's a real life story. It wasn't dystopic. They didn't murder each other. So it seems Huxley had like a bit of an evil mindset, dystopic, of course. It's a book, but he's highlighting human nature as a more hypothetical viewpoint. This Bregman story, real life. Me pointing out this Bregman story, well, it's one single example of... How things could go well. I, my conclusion is, I can't say for, I can't say for sure if if we're fundamentally good or evil. I think it's a constant debate because there's a devil in one shoulder and an angel in another telling us good about it. Is just really your decision, the way you think you choosing which side to pick? And it's all dependent on context once again. Every time people just make decisions to either pick good or bad, but I think fundamentally we know what's good and bad. It's just choice at the end of the day. Volition. Um. When people say, "I think, therefore I am," I believe them. I truly do. Je pense donc je suis. I think, which was said by Rene Descartes. Um, mathematician, Cartesian playing that guy, philosopher, French guy. Um, Je pense donc je suis. But the question is, why do you think how you think? What is it that you think? (laughs) Why are you like that? And the thing is, human beings, they all think they're right. When you sit down and you wonder, crazy is essentially deviation from the norm, right? we're all crazy in another human's books. Am I wrong? Am I right? I, 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 I reckon I'm right. At least one other person thinks we're one One other person is crazy. I, I'm thinking of it in this sense, less I think crazy is a bit of an extra word. But think of it like this. You could have uh, an Easterner who, from my beloved country, Zambia, who indulges himself in rat soup, You would see them making a joke out of an Asian person who literally licks his fingers when he's eating a dog. (laughs) I'm not trying to condescend or talk down on anyone, but it's essentially, um, it's just that context. Truly one man's meat is another man's poison. Or how you see Africans with kinky coiled hair. Of course, there are some non-Africans who have kinky coiled hair. But you have people who, with non kinky coiled hair, who look at us and be like, Oh, you're, you keep your hair like that. Like, is it, can, can you comb through it? Like, is it, is it combable? It's just, it's like, it's really. So for them looking at us, it's like, Oh, okay. A mad person. So it's just me trying to emphasize how contextual we are how contextual we are, even to time and just geography of it all. Imagine if you're speaking to someone who lived 50,000 years ago. Okay. That's a bit true, but that's a bit too many years back. A thousand years ago. And you're telling them, no, I have this piece of apparatus that I have in my house, that I free my balls. (laughs) Someone help you (laughs) that I release. Yeah thingy that I ease myself on in my house. I'm like, oh, you do that in your house? Isn't that gross? Or if a person you told them, No, I pound and ground my I, I pound and grind my maize to sawdust and then I eat it, like, oh really? Does that that doesn't make sense? Or like the way these days we pay people to run around a field and we, and we time them for it. It's, it sounds strange or, or, or paying someone else to act like someone else. And then we pay, we pay them and we applause them for it. It seems strange. It seems rather crazy that we live like this. So it's really contextual to time and to geography. You see, one wonderful thing, you see all these other things that I discuss and like humans have put themselves in charge then we question: Why are we even in charge in the first place? Is it by de facto or de jure? Just because it is, or we've been put here by order? What what distinguishes what distinguishes us from other species, other living animals? Why are we in charge? Why do we get to call the shots? It's not because we are conscious any more conscious than a chimpanzee or uh, we're a body with a mind or a mind with a body or whatever the useless argument is out there by a philosophical debater. Um, But because it's we have we have an ability to band together well. If you read Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Noah Harari. um, He explains quite nicely how our ability to band together is really what's brought us thus far? What has us this complex? What has us achieving all this? You can have a group of five people able to connect with even larger people through an office, a family of five, and then they go to offices, schools, all those are networks being built. You have um, companies, conglomerates, multinational companies. Besides that, you have towns, cities, provinces, countries, continents, all those are networks. And then now there's the advent of the internet. All that is, all that is network building to help us achieve, to help us civilize. It was put quite nicely, just, just to put into a better understanding, to see just how far we've come. John F. Kennedy put it quite well when he was talking about how America wants to lead the race to space. In his speech, he said, no man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come, but condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of but a half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them then about 10 years ago under this standard man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter only 5 years ago man learned to write and use a cart with the wheels christianity began less than 2 years ago the printing press came this year and then less than a month less than 2 months ago during this whole 50 year span of human history the steam engine provided a new source of power. Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Last month, electric lights and telephones and automobiles and airplanes became available. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. And now, if America's new spacecraft succeeds in reaching Venus, we will have literally reached the stars by midnight tonight. I think it's a spectacular pace we've gone at, maybe we've slowed down in the previous years because perhaps economic issues, but I think we've come quite far. Our ability to band together has brought us so much glory, so much civilization, even though we're differentiated by has time has seasoned us and even geography has changed us to be differentiated by race, tribe, language, and then of course, even, I don't know, biological differences, female, male, those in between. But still, we've managed to run the world quite well. Of course, human beings living together the way we have, we've failed each other to some extent for certain things we've betrayed each other we've betrayed each other in the stories we tell of each other it's if i'm to pick out one story it's how for africa even though it's the very beginning for everyone it stands as that as the very beginning the genesis of everyone the mother it's been really reduced to a continent that was only just colonized by Britain. All it's ever seen as is be is, is a continent that's been colonized. So in stories you hear Africa told as a continent was colonized, even though Australia was colonized by Britain. America is also post-colonial in relation to Britain, but essentially, all of us are post-colonial if we're going to implement this this, this this means of degrading everyone's existence to just one story of how they were dominated. We can tell the story, okay, fine. Britain is in fact post-colonial in relation to Rome. Rome is post-colonial in relation to Greece. Greece is post-colonial in relation to Egypt. And of course, human beings, again, they want to get involved. Plato, the philosopher, says that we're all post-colonial in relation to Atlantis. God knows if it exists. And archaeologists, of course, say we're all post-colonial in relation to Africa, which is true. But it's just this continuous effort to reduce certain fragments of life to one particular story, which I think is unfair in every sense of the word. But you see, you see, as we human beings work together, this, this collective effort that we have here on earth, it's been, because there's a, there's a general, because of certain bad habits, the, 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 the constant listening of that to that devil on our shoulders, Listen with that devil on our shoulders telling us to do bad, to to be to do bad to our brothers. I think around us there's a mutual mistrust. It's that knowing in each of us that we know that at the end of the day, man will act self will act selfishly. Homo economicus does not exist. It's always a tragedy of the commons where human beings always pick themselves even if it's at the expense of everybody else it's always personal it's always personal usually of course you can take out we can take out relationships from this whole equation but it's usually very personal pursuits for themselves there's a certain personal yeah person, personal pursuits for themselves it's that level of contradiction that just you know it's mutual mistrust let me give little stories once more. If you think of um, the apartheid situation in South Africa, where you have um, the way it was before pre 1991 1994. um, You have white domination over black, the telling of the story that whites are essentially better than blacks. And, you know, taking, implementing that, that order is maintained, but you still had white people who were maintaining, who wanted to go against the status quo and fight against the system. And even if you have a white person, if you have a story of Tim Jenkins and Stephen Lee, who were in fact white, but were fighting actively for black, for blackness, wanted black equality. Escape from Pretoria is a good movie about it. The guy from Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe, plays Tim Jenkins. He, so it's like these white people, you see, okay, in this story, it's like you have these people, essentially all together, the white people against black, but then even within themselves is contradiction because of whatever selfish spirit within them to act contrary to what their band, what their particular band is telling them to act as. Or another example could be how you have Thomas Jefferson um, signing the Slavery Abolishment Act. I haven't read too extensively about it or intensively. Maybe it's because he had a reckoning an enlightenment. He, when he was in cahoots, when he was in a relationship with his Sally Hemings who was in fact three quarters white, even though she's considered black, was maybe he in his head is like, you know what, I think black people deserve a chance to to be, be seen as full human beings instead of three-fifths of a human being. There's just always contradiction. You have Jesus Christ with his twelve disciples, who is betrayed by Judas. You have him, one of his other friends, essentially just his friends, Peter betrays him three times. It's just that constant, it's it's a lot of, there's a lot of listening to the devil's on our shoulders that makes us, you know, that makes, that makes the world not spin as well. The effort that we put in not as effective because that, that collective effort for anything is usually betrayed. But like, of course, in extreme cases, when it's certain things that we want to fight against, truly as a a group, as a band, we notice that there's a problem. We have organizations like the UN that come up when, let's say, 1945, when Second World War ended, the UN stated never again, we're not going to do this again. We can't have fighting over and over again, killing lives, spilling blood. We need to send out the message of peace all across the world. Fine. We have, if we can, again, we're in charge. You see how bad, do you see how badly we've betrayed nature our planet after being in charge? But then of course you have people, of course we here as a collective we're saying we're going to essentially, whether we like it or not, we are saying by using plastic, we are saying we want to damage the environment, regardless of what you think. Even if in your head, you're thinking, no, me personally, I have meat, I have meatless Mondays, me alone. I'm not going to, I'm not damaging the environment you essentially are. The way we live now is unsustainable. So truly after being left in charge by nature, by de facto, we've been, we've betrayed it. We've been, we've been betraying every other species that's left us, that has us in charge by default. We're poachers. We do not care about the environment. Of course we have people, we do, of course we have people standing up. Greta Thunberg shouted to her, but like essentially we've been left in charge and we're really just chaotic for the environment when you have a volcano erupting in most recently in Congo, or you have Australian fires, or even an earthquake. I mean, we should not blame nature. I think it's just it's pissed off. We keep making it hot and then we can't satisfy it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but essentially, we just keep damaging things even though we've been left in charge. But then, of course, these organizations, these people, these people who turn away from the norm and say, you know what, I'm going to fight this is what keeps us going. What keeps us driving for better? In my looking at context, again, I was thinking you, if we were allowed to lift people from different places to fight different wars, history could be a bit mismatched, mismanaged. Let me explain. If you think of the Israeli-Palestinian war, what's happening now? So Israelis essentially claiming their land. I think for the way the Jews are behaving, you could have Hitler turning in his grave and saying, you know what, I warned you about these Jews. But it's not allowed to lift Hitler and say, you know what, Hitler, you go scot-free for what you did in the, in the in the Nazi Germany whole thingy, confusion thing. Having him be lifted and say, you know what, Hitler is going to act as a hero in this Israeli-Palestinian war. It's not allowed. You have to, it's very contextual. So how we choose to act in a particular time If we don't choose to act for the better, in that frame, we will go down in history as the bad one. So we need to be able to learn from history. It's a very patternistic existence that we have here on Earth. One of repetition, one easily studied and understood. Of course, sometimes we do have a few surprises here and there few turnarounds that has people turning and thinking and changing the way they think because of one big thing, but essentially it's very patternistic, which has me questioning how we fail to learn from history. We have the financial crisis of 2008 versus the Great Depression of the early 1900s. You have the COVID-19 pandemic versus the Spanish flu offering a few lessons. We have the Zimbabwean inflation versus Germany inflation. It's just how we we need to take notes from history is what I keep emphasizing. Of course, context presents new like new life and does present new context, new stories, new new peppers, new 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 salt and pepper, new spice in the situation that could be hard to take notes from history from, making hard take notes from history from, but like history does offer a lot to learn from. In mathematics, something I pray I wish I had known sooner. Okay, mathematics is the language of science, which is why I love it. In mathematics, you start from an assumption, a decided ground from which you will base your proof on. So essentially you create context and then you build and I'm going to stop boring you just now, stay tuned. We'd stop boring you. You create a frame of context that you live by. So just as a, an example off the hook off the bat, you say, okay, we have a real plane and we deal here with real numbers. We have a complex plane. We deal with complex numbers. That's just basic examples. Essentially, when you have these things, you are very you're restricted, and like you can't, you're not allowed to shift one thing into like one reality and one thing into another entity. It's not allowed. It's very contextual. Mathematics is very contextual. Gödel is a mathematician who, earlier in the ni- in 1931, he said in his incompleteness theorem, he said, he proved that for any sufficiently strong and consistent axiomatic system, in layman's terms, that um, for, for essentially any, any situation, there exists a statement which can neither be proved nor disproved within the system. So for any frame of reality, there exists a state there exists a set a group of things that you cannot prove or disprove. So in this frame of reality that we've made now this whole human state, what we have here on Earth, a lot of gaps in our thinking, a lot of questions we don't have answers to. Which I think is why we have a lot of the world, um, running towards towards um, religion and spirituality, making it act as a gap filler. Of course, religion is notorious for not being too consistent in its books. Some people say its stories are stolen from Greek mythology and other mythologies. For example, how you have Atlas, how you have the example of how you have Atlas lifting the weight of the world, and Jesus Christ carrying the sins of the world and or you have Pandora opening a box of problems who's who's also one of the very first, who's one of the first um, beings on earth and then you have Eve biting into an apple and she opens essentially this box of problems which is her seeing the reality of things opening up sin for us and having us suffer. Maybe... Truly, religion, it can be peppered with human inefficiencies is what I would suggest. But I think the existence of God is what I don't dispute. I think he's, he does exist. This is, of course, another debate in itself. Bertrand Russell has a teapot analogy of how, what is right now. He says, okay, so essentially, he says, God does not exist. He says, what we have here is one beautiful accident. He is uh, like a biologist like Richard Dawkins, who says, yes, right here. We have one beautiful accident. I can give you a billion and six reasons why God does not exist. You can read his book. <laughs> um, I can't remember the title. But yeah, Bertrand Russell has a teapot analogy, teapot analogy of how he says, okay, fine. You're telling me there's a God and then you can't prove it? Fine, I'm going to tell you this. Right now, between Earth and Mars, there's a teapot that exists and it's orbiting. And because you cannot prove me wrong, therefore, it exists. The reason why this is flawed is because essentially, there's no proof of a teapot being in the middle of nowhere in space orbiting, how did it get there? It just doesn't, it's unnecessary. But then if you think about the way Earth is ordered, the way the solar system is ordered, the way the Milky Way is ordered, the way the universe is ordered. I argue, even though I'm such a science lover, I argue that essentially the world was created. It doesn't add up to me to think this is on beautiful accident. So the stories suggested by religion, be it Islamic, Christianity, they seem credible. Of course, it could be again, like the elephant story, how we're all touching different parts of the truth. Maybe if we all put it together, it will help us understand, which is really the base of Bahá'í Baha'i faith. It'll help us understand things better, perhaps. But I think religion provides a lovely way of arriving at spirituality to help us understand life better. I'm an advocate, I'm an advocate of science, I like I truly believe in science, because I think a lot of what the world, people in the world are arguing about, if really, we just put a scientific mindset upon it, it's not, some things it's fact, it's not up for debate, lot of biological debates that are going on that I really wonder, when we got the lines blurred, why the scientists are keeping quiet, why people are choosing to ignore the scientists, because I don't think all are quiet. So I advocate for science, but I think God is the creator. This could be a debate in itself, the atheist versus a person who believes in God. Some gaps in religion I can't fight against also. I fail to rebuttal. But for the question of God, I'm, I'm convinced that he does exist. <laughs> You see, in this life that we have right now, it's very, it's very much a lot, it's a lot, it's confusing, it's a lot, if I'm to steal another line from Hamlet, the play by Shakespeare, which I haven't watched, I've read a few snippets from it. He says, thus, conscience makes cowards of us all, which I agree with, because to be conscious of certain things, having our conscience enlightened, could make you afraid. In his same soliloquy of the the nunnery nunnery scene of the the Hamlet life where he says to be or not to be, he's contemplating, oh, I've gone too far. So Hamlet is a story, essentially, some say it's about a a man gone mad after encountering a ghost, or it's about doubt, uncertainty, life and death. So in this particular sweet scene, um, Hamlet is contemplating suicide, essentially. And though this is a very sensitive topic, I think for the confusion that the world has, the way it exists, it's very much confusing. It's confusing. It's a lot. So I think kudos to anyone who continues because it's quite confusing. It's a lot of contradiction. You find the truth, someone rebuttals and they tell this isn't true. So I think as we progress. One thing I would love people to develop is just a sense of grounding in who they are. I've told these stories of the human condition, but you see the human condition, as I said, is contextual. So individuals need to know who they are. But the problem is, there's a lot of um, running, going with the wave. We're acting like dead fish, going with the flow. We're like acting woke. You want to be, you want to sound more avant-garde, more, more present to the times without forgetting who yourself, who you are as yourself, as you, uh, as a standalone individual, which I think shouldn't be condoned. It shouldn't be encouraged. As we go through this, I would like people to stand their ground and be who they are. Of course, there's certain things that you should be flexible and you should want to change your mind. You should want to learn. But I think for certain truths, I think for the truth of science, for the truth of who you are, You need to be able to stand your ground and know because if anything, you'll be shaken by everything because the world is really, it's tumultuous. It's, it's, it's confusing. It's a lot. Maya Angelou encountered a Brave and Startling Truth when she wrote A Brave and Startling Truth for the 50th anniversary of the UN. And she put quite well how we humans contradict ourselves. I'll really, I'll, I'm will i going to read a snippet of, it, snippet of it, the end of it, just to help us understand the contradiction, to see the contradiction from a, from a poetic point of view. I hope you enjoy it. For, po- for poetry lovers, she's a classic, so I think you will enjoy her. When we come to it, and I quote, when we come to it, we this people on this minuscule and kithless globe who reach daily for the blade, the bomb and the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace, we this people on this note of matter in whose mouths abide cankerous words which challenge our very existence Yet out of those same mouths come songs of such exquisite sweetness, that the heart falters in its labor, and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people, on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon, that in a twinkling, life is sapped from the living, yet those same hands, can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness. That the haughty neck is happy to bow, and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward, floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth, a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible, we are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when and only when we come to it. That's a brave and startling truth by Maya Angelou. I would love to end with the quote that I started with by yours truly. We humans are textured, contextual. We are to our times, to our environments, to be or not to be, which is the line from Shakespeare is all dependent on context. We humans are textured, contextual. We are to our times. To our environments, to be or not to be is all dependent on context. Thank you. For the, For the power, power of truth, power. Truth, truth. This, this, is this is the this glad is report. Red, 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 red.